0: Hi, church. Uh, we are back again. Uh, con- construction's going great. They're putting down the tile work in the restrooms. Uh, very, very exciting. So, thank you for your patience. If you're unable to join us on Sundays at South Broadway at 2 o'clock, uh, we're glad that we can join each other this way and we're excited to be back finally. Uh, hopefully, that day is coming sooner rather than later, but as soon as we know. The details. Uh, we will let you know as well. Um, so we continue to pray for that. Um, God is just continuing to bless us uh, Trinity in, in so many different ways. Um, and we're just glad that you're part of our church family. And I know there's a, there's a few of you listening that aren't a part of our church family. We're glad that you're here too. And we hope that this message is a blessing uh, to you. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 27 together in just a moment. But before we do, would you bow with me and let's approach God as we approach His Word. Father, thank you that you are continuing to be gracious gracious and merciful in in giving our church many, many blessings. Uh, Father, we just pray that you continue to bless us, give us unity, give us a love for one another. Father, um, help the renovation to move along. And help us to be able to join together um, at home very, very soon. Uh, Father, for anyone who is hurting or suffering, some that we know and some that we don't know, Father, we just pray that you um, bring comfort and peace in our church family where it's needed, where it's lacking. May we trust you. May we have faith in you. Thank you that you forgive us for our sins. Father, please continue to bless us. And as we open your word, help us to see Jesus clearly and help us to see why he has all authority to overturn everything. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Mark chapter 11. We're going to be starting together in verse 27 in just a moment. So, A few weeks ago, we saw the most monumental event in world history up to the point of Jesus' crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, we see the pivotal moment for humankind. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus come into the temple and overturn everything. Now, I know we might be thinking, well, that's all the way in Israel. We live in America. We're, t- we're 2,000 years ago. I mean, was that really that big of an event? It absolutely was. It absolutely was. We have God creating the world in Genesis. We have the f- man's fall into sin. And then the temple is what God has given us to restore and, and uh, maintain our relationship with Him. It is God's presence on earth. It's huge. It's huge. And so when Jesus comes, a couple weeks ago, we saw Him come into the temple. And we saw Him inspect the temple. And instead of finding a place of worship and a place of evangelism where the world can come and hear how good and gracious and merciful God is towards sinners, instead of finding that, Jesus found a stockyard buying and selling he found instead of a place of worship and prayer and introspection and and a place dedicated to the worship of god and to evangelism he instead found a marketplace a bazaar where people were yelling and screaming and exchanging money and so what he did in this most important place in all the universe he went and overturned everything he overturned everything and this is the moment in time where the religious leaders they didn't like what Jesus had been doing up to this point but he was just an annoyance perhaps something that they were growing in worry about but when he did this it took it to a different level This is the tip of the mountaintop for the religious leaders. Maybe he would go away. Maybe he'd go away. Maybe he'd go away. But now he has done something so public. He has done something so mind-blowing. He overturned the temple. He abolished the temple. He did something so mind-blowing that they had to act. They had to act. This was the turning point. For the religious leaders, this was the biggest straw and the straw that broke the camel's back. They had to kill him. They had to destroy him. And so their big question today is going to be this. Jesus, what gives you the right, the authority, to overturn this most important place in all the universe? What gives you the right? And... We know, we, we kind of know what gives him the right, and maybe, maybe we just know he's God and that's what he can do. Uh, but what does give him the right to do these things? Have you ever thought about that? And even beyond that, what gives Jesus the right to overturn our lives? You see, if Jesus has the right to overturn the temple, he has the right to overturn anything. If he has the right to overturn the temple, he has the right to overturn nations and overturn churches and overturn our lives. You see, to faithfully follow Jesus is to have your life overturned. That's what what it means. We've we've seen in the book of Mark, what's Jesus' message? Repent and believe the good news that through Jesus, God saves sinners. Repent. Repentance is all about being overturned. Maybe, Christian, maybe your life prior to Christ was a life dedicated to fleshly passions like lust and greed and power and pride and fear. And when Jesus saved you, He overturned all of those. We've heard stories of of people coming to Christ and realizing that they can no longer work where they work. They can no longer sell what they sell. We've seen Christians come to Christ and as they are saved, they can no longer perform and do the actions that they had been doing previously. And when they stop, maybe their family rejects them or their friends reject them. It overturns their lives. I can no longer live in such a way. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in church and you've always been seen as a good guy, a good person, a good kid. Maybe your problem like me was self-righteousness. Before I was saved, I was in church my entire life. I knew what to do. I knew all the right answers in Sunday school. I knew what you were supposed to do. I knew what you weren't supposed to do. And this self-righteousness pushed me far away from God, And when Jesus saved me, he overturned my reliance on self-righteousness by exposing how sinful I truly am. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you're a believer in all of us, and this is all believers. And maybe Jesus right now, at this moment, is still overturning things in your life or in your world. Maybe he's exposing fears this past year that you've had. Maybe he's exposed idols in this past year that he's overturning and calling you to take another step closer in your walk with him. And maybe you're listening to this and you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe he's calling you right now to salvation and maybe you're wondering what gives him the right to overturn my life? Let's read. Let's see. What gives Jesus this right? Mark chapter 11, verse 27, goes like this. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there it is, the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you. By what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's put a pause right there. Jesus walking around the temple. All right, that's where the big event happened. Chief priests and the scribes and the elders. This was a group of the, San, this is called the Sanhedrin. They were the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the Jewish religion. Which meant they were the Jewish government. And this was made up of 71 men who were in charge, of who had immense power in the Jewish state, in the the lives of Jews everywhere. And so the temple was their temple. That was their baby. That was what they were responsible for. And so when Jesus overturns it, maybe they were there, maybe they weren't there, maybe half of them were, and saw it. But whatever the case, these men come or send a delegation to Jesus, and they say, What authority gives you the right to do what you've done? And Jesus, as so wise, he answers their question with another question. He says, what do you think about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, we've seen in the book of Mark, and he paves the way for Jesus. He is baptizing people for the repentance of sin, for the forgiveness of sin through repentance. Sounds very familiar. He is paving the way for Jesus. He is making hearts ready for Jesus. He's very popular with the people. And so in front of all these people, Jesus, I'll answer your question if you tell me. Is John from heaven or from man? Is John's authority from heaven or from man? And now, as, as any great leader does when they get asked a hard question, their answer was, well, I don't know. If we say he's from heaven, then everybody will say, well, why didn't you follow him? Why would you love it when he got his head chopped off? And if we say he's from man, the crowd is going to be really upset. with well, They're going to hate us. So, well, I don't know. So Jesus says, well, if you're not going to answer that question, I'm not going to answer your question. But he doesn't do it directly, but he does answer it. It gives us a parable. Let's continue to read. This is chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get away from, get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had sent one other, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, which means if he's coming, the owner probably died. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he he had told the parable against them, the religious leaders. So they left him and went away. Jesus, what gives you the authority? to overturn the temple. Jesus, what gives you the right to overturn everything in our lives? The first thing that Jesus tells us, Jesus has the right to overturn the temple, and He has the right to overturn everything in the universe, including our lives, because everything belongs to Him. As Jesus tells this parable, Israel is the vineyard. The temple is in the vineyard. Israel's is God's people. He built them. He created them. He made them. And the same is true for everything in the universe. God made it. Now, we know that this is Israel. This is almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to this from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat. In it. And so he's describing Israel, but we could extend this to all the whole world, including our lives. We did not create the vineyard, God did. It does not belong to us. Yeah, countries and nations might invade another nation, or, or Columbus might have come and planted a flag in North America, but it does not really belong to Spain, or to America, or to you, or to me at the foundation it belongs to the Creator. Just as God sculpted Israel just as God planted Israel He created and sculpted and planted your life and my life. Pittsburgh is God's vineyard. Trinity Baptist Church is God's vineyard. The Hodges family is God's vineyard. Jordan is God's vineyard. We would not exist if it were not for the gracious creation of God. We would not exist for all. Or at all. Every molecule that exists in the universe belongs to God. Obeys God. Every plant and every animal know their creator and obey their creator. The mud on the ground knows its creator and obeys its creator. The only creations that on earth that don't follow that formula is us. But we are created by God and he owns us. He owns our families, he owns our homes, he owns our churches, he owns our cities, our states, country, world our universe and we we see it's a picture of his creation right he gets down he gets dirty he creates it he plants the vineyard he builds the watchtower he removes the stones in the way I mean all these things show a care and a direction and a desire and an effort by the Creator and we're supposed to look at it and go Israel didn't create itself you look at Israel's history they are Israel they're in the land not because of anything that they did. That's pretty much the theme of the Old Testament can can be said to be that. God's grace toward Israel who doesn't deserve a land of their own flowing with milk and honey, but yet God gave it to them. He built it. He created it. He put them there. And the same can be true for you and me. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. It belongs to God. The air in our lungs are not our own. That's God. It's God's. And so the Father is in focus here, isn't it? He's the owner, and He sends the Son, but we know... We know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is equal in power, majesty, glory, goodness, and wealth with the Father. And so, we don't need to look at this as in God the Father is is substantively different than the Son. That's not Jesus' point in the parable. We We know that the Father and the Son have different roles, but they are equal in essence. They're equal in Godhood. We worship one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see this, we see this, John 35, uh, John 3.35 says this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things to His hand. Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns everything. We see this even more clearly in Colossians chapter 1. God's Word says this, He is the, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's ownership. God created all things, and it belongs to Jesus. All things. All things, all people, all institutions belong to Jesus. And listen to this kind of ownership. I don't own anything at this level. It goes like, it says this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That means the molecules of our body hold together because Jesus wants them to. That's a kind of ownership that we can never even imagine. Jesus owns all things. Therefore... Jesus has the right to overturn tables in our life. Overturn our entire lives. Because they're not truly ours. We are tenants. We have been graciously given these lives. We are called to produce fruit for God with our lives. Every person in the universe. Every person on the planet. Every person in our church is called, given. We are tenants. We were graciously allowed these lives. They truly belong to, to Jesus. So he has the right to overturn all things, the temple and all things in our life. And look at this. And he is not a dictator. He is a gracious owner of all things. He's not a harsh dictator. He's a gracious owner of all things. Listen to how, what he has given us. Listen to the life that he has given us. Listen to Israel. He says, my beloved, this is Isaiah 5 again, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it to keep us safe. He hewed out a wine vat in it. His creation, our lives, what He has given us to be, to have be, as, to be tenants in, what He has given us is incredibly gracious. It is filled with gracious gifts from God. He has given us, no matter what your life looks like, no matter the most, the, the, the most suffering life that we have among us today, no matter who we are, we have gracious gifts of God that we don't deserve, that He has just given to us. We have fertile soil in our lives. And He is not required to give us these things. No matter where you are in life, you have tremendous gifts from God. You have a family or friends you're invited to have a church family if you don't have a church family. We live in America. We have tremendous freedoms. We, You probably own a car. You probably own a, or live in a home. You have electricity. You, pro, you have, probably have plumbing. All these things are incredible grace, the, from the incredible grace of God. We can enjoy television. We can enjoy a good barbecue sandwich. We can enjoy pizza. We can enjoy ice cream. Yes, even ice cream. We need to see even ice cream. Ice cream as a tremendous gift of God who has given us as tenants a vineyard of this life that is fertile. And he's cleared the stones away. And he has hewn a wine vat. Wine is a symbol of celebration. He's given us these things. When there is evil in the world or suffering in the world, it comes from our sinfulness or someone else's sinfulness. God did not create the vineyard and put landmines in them hoping that you would step on them. That's not what he's done. He's a gracious owner. God has never done you wrong. He is a gracious owner. Jesus has given us grace upon grace upon grace in his vineyard. And Unfortunately, what we have done and what Israel did and what the Sanhedrin did, what happened in the temple, was that, yes, everything belongs to him. He has given it to us as his tenants. And in our sinfulness, we seek to steal these good things as our own. We seek to not produce the fruit that he has required of us. So... Jesus' parable, this beautiful vineyard, we are tenants of this beautiful vineyard that we didn't do anything to create, we didn't do anything to clear, we didn't do anything to build, we have just taken it and we can live there and enjoy the fruits of it and the owner asks for his right to some of the fruit. And yet, what do the tenants do? They say, no, this belongs to me. It really belongs to God, and they know that. It belongs to the Father, it belongs to the owner, but I'm going to take it for my own, it belongs to me now. Isaiah 5, again, where Jesus is taking this image from, says it this way, Isaiah 5 through through four, "And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard." God says, "Judge between me and my vineyard." He says, "What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked For it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God says, look around at your life. When we understand that everything we get is from the grace of God, God says, judge what I have done. Have I not given you everything that you need? Have I not given you grace upon grace upon grace? And he says, and then when I come and inspect my vineyard that I have planted and given to you as tenants, I find fruit that I do not desire. Just like the tenants in the parable, we, in our sinfulness, were enjoying the grace of God in the vineyard and refusing to produce the fruit that He deserves and expects. We were acting like the universe is ours. And we would live in it like we want. The fruit that God requires and expects of every person in the universe is justice and righteousness and purity and love and joy and worship and goodness and faithfulness and a relationship with our Creator and a thankfulness to Him. Those are are the fruits that we must be producing. And I believe any rational person would not look at that and go, that's too much. I should not be thankful for the life that God has given me. I mean, we would, if somebody gave us a, 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 a giant gift... Like every day we have gifts from God that we don't recognize. If, God, if we were to get a giant gift and somebody would take it and say, finally, I deserve this thing. Maybe somebody handcrafted you something incredible, put it in a nice present and gave it to you, and you open it up, and what do we think about somebody who goes, huh, finally, you give me something, want? Like, poof, good, now it's mine. And walks away. What do we think? That person was incredibly wicked. That's what we have all done. We reject a relationship with him as we breathe the air that He has graciously given us, with the air that He has given us, we curse Him, and we reject Him, and we live as if He doesn't exist. And His graciousness continues. The owner does not go and squash these people, doesn't throw them in prison. His right is to do that the first time the first rejection. When he does not get the fruit that he is owed, he can go. He should, by law, go and kick them out. Send them to prison for stealing, for mutiny, for treason. And instead, in his graciousness, he sends servants to call them back to him. To call them to righteousness. To call them to a good relationship, to a right relationship. Jesus is talking about the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, the Word of God that was sent out graciously calling Israel back, graciously calling us back. Non-believer, you are listening to the Word of God right now, and the Word of God is acting as if it were these servants that the owner sends out to call the wicked tenants back. He sends them out, and he sends them out, and he sends them out. This displays the graciousness and the patience of God. When Israel sinned against God and worshipped false gods, and when they, when they did not allow Gentiles to truly worship in the temple, when they did all these things, God has sent them prophets over and over and over, calling them out, calling them back, showing their wickedness, calling them to come back to a gracious owner, to a gracious God who loves them. But what do the tenants do? They treat these servants shamefully. They beat them. They mock them. And they kill them. So why does Jesus have the right to overturn the tables? Because Jesus' mission from the Father is to overturn our tables by calling us to repentance. Not not only does he own everything, Jesus' mission in life is to overturn tables. That is why He has taken on human flesh. That is why He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. That was why He walked among us, to call us to repentance, to provide a means of salvation to the repentant through His death and resurrection. That's His mission from the Father. What gives you the authority to overturn this? The Father, the Creator, and Sustainer of the Universe, the Triune God, has made it the mission of the Son of God to willingly come and call us, overturn the tables in our lives to help us produce the fruit that God requires when we have come to Him through Jesus Christ for salvation. It's almost, it's so, it's so sad It's so sad. Verse 6. He still had, so this is after they've killed and and belittled and beat those other servants. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Wow. You see kind of the sadness. I mean, the father sends the son and and says, "This, this, this surely will get the point across. Maybe it's the servants. Yeah, the servants, but I'm going to send my son. And what happens? The father sends the son. And instead of realizing the significance of the son being in their presence, they kill him. They kill him. Father had the right. To bring the hammer down when they killed the first servant, even before that, when they just didn't send the fruit, he had the right to do that. But in his graciousness, he sins. He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. And his graciousness is for these wicked tenants is so huge and massive that he says, "I, this is. I'm going to do the greatest. I'm going to do. I'm going to extend the greatest olive branch that I possibly can. I'm going to send my son." Surely they will respect and listen to the Son. And Jesus comes among us and He shows that He is the Son of God by performing these miracles in front of countless eyewitnesses, by teaching as one who has authority, by showing that He is, by living a sinless life, He shows that He is the Son of God by dying and then resurrecting. He shows that He is the Son. Surely we will listen to the Son. And the son's message in the parable might have gone something like this. Listen, tenants, I'm here, I'm the son, and here's the message. The owner is willing to forgive and forget your trespasses and sins and wickedness. Repent and come back into a right relationship with the owner. Produce the fruit and give it to the father. And you'll be forgiven and you can live in the vineyard and enjoy the fruits that are owed to the Father. And He'll let you eat and drink of the wine. He only wants a portion. Come. And I must overturn overturn the tables of your wickedness and call you to repentance, but come back into a great relationship with Him. Jesus has the right because He is the final extension of grace and patience of God. The magnitude of Jesus' incarnation, the incarnation is when Jesus took on flesh, when the owner sends his son, the magnitude of the incarnation requires obedience and requires overturning whatever Jesus asks us to overturn. It's a must, it's not optional. He's not a servant, He's not a philosopher, a preacher, He's not a mere man. He is God in flesh. He arrived here himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lion of Judah, who is perfectly and dangerously holy, has arrived in the vineyard to graciously offer peace. To graciously tell the tenants what we must do to be in right relationship with God. We get a sense of this in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ and you crucified him. Tenants, this is not a servant. This is the Lord and the Messiah. The Messiah. We must... As the tenants, we must respond as they did to Peter's sermon. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Let Jesus overturn your tables. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But instead, those tenants said to one another, there's the son. That must mean the father is dead and the son is the owner. If we kill the owner, there is no owner. And we can claim this for ourselves. What wickedness and treason we have committed. Every one of us. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. We get a glimpse of the resurrection, I mean, Jesus is talking about something that is coming, that is on the horizon, getting larger and larger and larger by the moment. Jesus knows that these men will kill. He says right there, you're going to kill the son. And they just kill the son. We see the disrespect. They don't bury him. They don't have a ceremony for him. They don't send him back to his family. They kill him. They throw him over the wall. They toss him over the fence. Total, utter disrespect. And we see a glimpse of what the crucifixion will be. Humiliation beyond humiliation. Disrespect beyond disrespect. And again, not just a servant, not just a man like you, not just a man or woman like you, but He's the Son. Utter disrespect. So when the Son is killed, there's no greater treason. There's nothing more that can be done to call these people to repentance. It's the greatest sin that can be committed. And so the Father acts rightly and justly to destroy the tenants. His patience has run out. There's no greater servant. That's that's one of the reasons that that the New Testament calls, the, after the resurrection, the, the last days. We're in the last days for 2,000 years. After. Why? Why is it the last days? It's the last act. It's the final act. Because Jesus has come. There's nothing greater that can happen. There's no, this is the tip. This is the tip top of the mountain. The incarnation. Jesus has come. We cannot wait for something greater. We cannot wait for more patience from God. This is it. There's nothing greater that can happen. Then the Son of God coming, taking on flesh, calling us to repentance, and then dying on the cross, us killing Him, and He dies on the cross, rises again, and calls us now, here is another, the pinnacle of grace. You have killed me, but I call you to come and repent and believe and have your sins forgiven. Overturn your tables. Come back to God. And so we might expect... We might expect that the story would end right there. And in a normal parable with a normal person, the story would end. But it doesn't end there. Jesus has the right to overturn the tables because Jesus is the only way to salvation. There's nothing more. We would expect the story to end, but it doesn't end there, does it? There's this weird ending that jesus puts in that only uh, comes with a supernatural ending because he says he says this listen to how this ends they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard what will the owner of the vineyard do he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others give the vineyard to others is connected to verse 10 have you not read in the scripture He's going to give it to others. Have you not read in the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. How are these things connected? He's going to give the vineyard to other people. How is he going to do that? The death of the son, he compares to the cornerstone of the temple. The temple, the builders of the temple, those who thought that they were in authority, the Sanhedrin rejected the cornerstone of the temple. The cornerstone was the first stone placed. All the other stones were stacked on according to where that cornerstone is. Remember, the temple was was in charge of our relationship with God, how we become right with God, how we can overturn the tables in our life and have a right relationship. That's where we do those things, in the temple. The presence of God. So the cornerstone of the temple was all important for that temple to be built. And and Jesus says that, that son that was killed will be the cornerstone for our relationship with God. There's only one cornerstone. There's only one way. There's nothing greater that will come. The death of the son calls all people to repent, to allow him to overturn the tables in our lives that he desires, and to believe the good news, that through his death and resurrection, we have a new and better cornerstone for a relationship with God the Father. And so this new, these new owners of the vineyard, they're not Israel. It's anyone, including anyone in Israel, anyone who comes to the Son, who comes through the Son's death and resurrection and repents from our treason in the vineyard. And through the blood of Jesus, we have been forgiven of our great sin. Isn't that marvelous? Only God would tell and do a parable in this way. The graciousness of God just builds and builds and builds. And so, so, our call today, through this parable, from God, is this. Jesus has all authority to overturn all of our life. And His offer is to overturn our life and to give us a better one. To allow us to enjoy the vineyard that we have now in a new and better way. To find joy in the vineyard now by overturning our sinful life and following Jesus. We can be forgiven and restored We can have access to a new and better temple through his broken body, his death on the cross, and his resurrection to new life. We can have a better relationship, a new relationship with God. Mankind has offered this new relationship through the body of Jesus. Friend, he is willing and able to forgive you of all of your treason. He forgave me of all my treason, and I follow him. And he's still in my life gently, but directly, is overturning tables in my life. So Christian, don't ask this question. What gives Jesus the right to my marriage? My marriage, maybe your marriage is in a very rocky place and Jesus is calling you, husband or wife, to repent and humble yourself towards your spouse and to love them in a new way and to be recommitted to them. Don't go, what did Jesus give the right? This is my marriage. No, it's his marriage. Maybe Jesus is calling you to reach out to your friends and your neighbors Maybe you say, Jesus, that's my pride on the line. That might be embarrassing. What gives you the right? He has the right because your life is His and your reputation is His. The only person, this is so freeing to me, the only person who has your reputation or my reputation in His hand is Jesus. And He will do with it what He pleases and it will be good and it will be right. Maybe you're enduring suffering and you're asking Jesus, what right do you have to allow suffering to happen in my life? He has all authority to do this. And you know what Jesus says about our suffering? All of our suffering is meaningful. Romans 8:28, for all things work together for the good of those who love God. So do not worry whatever he does with you in your life is for his glory and your good. Non-believer. Since everything we said is true because the word of God is true and since the word of God is true Jesus has all authority even over your life to overthrow the temple of your life, overthrow the tables in your life. He has that right since he is God. So don't ask that question. What rights do you have? He has all rights. That's not the question. The question is, are you going to accept his grace and mercy? You're hearing my voice right now. That means you have you have breath in your lungs. That means you still have time. His patience has not run out in your life. He is still calling you now to repent and believe the good news that God saves sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't we serve a gracious God? Non-believer, we call you today. Repent. Let Jesus overturn the tables in your life. Repent and believe the good news that although we are treasonous tenants, He has offered us forgiveness. Take it today. We love you. We'll see you again very soon.